Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. That's still me. As regular listeners will now know, the idea behind the show is I speak to a designer, maker, artist, or architect about a material with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. I'm currently sitting across a meeting table from Andrew Waugh, one half of the Shoreditch-based architecture practice War Thistleton. We first met a little over 20 years ago when the practice was best known for working on a string of incredibly fashionable bars, clubs and restaurants in East London, such as the Blue Note and the Air Brothers. Spool forward a couple of decades and its profile is rather different. Arguably, this can be put down to one material and three letters, CLT. Andrew first started building with cross-laminated timber in 2003 and has gone on to forge a global reputation with projects such as Murray Grove, a nine-storey timber tower in Hackney, for which the practice won an RABA President's Award for Research in 2009, and subsequently the nearby Dalston Lane development. In 2018, the practice was shortlisted for the Sterling Prize for its Bushy Cemetery. Andrew. Was that all right? Yeah, that's great. Thank you very much for doing this. <laughs> 20 years. I know, it's a worry, isn't it? It's oh, a worry. Man and boy. <laughs> so this is a podcast about materials, as I think okay. I just laid out. Yep. Um, it's not necessarily listened to by architecture experts. Um, so can we explain for people what CLT is? Yeah, sure. Cross-laminated timber. And it's a panelized timber product that um, comes out of a factory about 16 meters long by about three meters wide. And those panels are then cut down and are formed to make walls and floors and roofs, lift shafts, staircases. So it's like they arrive on site um, like a big kind of airfix model. And then they're craned into position and a couple of guys on site with cordless screwdrivers go round and um, screw them all together. Mm. So it's very simple. Um, solid means of construction. So these panels, I should say, are made up of uh, laminated timber planks. Each one of those planks about um, 25 mil an inch thick, and then they are laid down, they're sprayed with a PVA water-based adhesive, and then the next layer of planks go perpendicular to that layer of planks, and they're built up at sort of 90 degree angles, if you like. So that can be any depth from about three of those. So that would be 75 millimeters, three inches, or all the way up to you know, a couple of feet thick, mm. depending on what they're doing. Mm. So if you're building a multi-story car park, then, you know, then the planks might be two foot thick. And if you're building a wall between a bathroom and a bedroom, maybe they'll be 75 mil thick. So it just depends what they're doing. Because um, then we made a multi-story car park out of uh, CLT. Yep. Where was that? Uh, there are two that I know of, one in Finland and one that's going up at the moment in the west coast of the United mm. States. Mm. But actually just keeping a finger on keeping sort of like, keeping a, a sort of, you know, an understanding of everything that's going on in the world in terms of CLT at the moment is becoming increasingly difficult. Mm. Do you see yourself as a bit of a guardian of this material now? Not a guardian as much as kind of, um, I'm fascinated by the rise of this material. I um, have become quite close to a number of other people that are, you know, that are working with the material across the world, um, which has been really exciting. I mean, it's been a fabulous kind of journey the last 15 years or so. Um, you know, when we built our first building in 2003, as you said, there was just a couple of thousand uh, cubic meters of this material made a year. This year it'll be a million, next year projected to be two million. 57 different manufacturers in pretty much every continent. Mm. 
Mm. I mean, can we lay out for people what the benefits of the material are? You've alluded to them, but can, can yeah, we kind there, of make it clear? There are three principal benefits, in my opinion. The first one, and where we come from as a practice, is around sustainability. So concrete and steel, the production of concrete and steel, um, account for about 15% of global greenhouse gas emissions. So that is, just to put that in perspective, that's about five times more than airline travel. So that's just the production. Then taking those materials to site, building with those materials, incredibly heavy materials, uh, materials that need to be protected in many ways, um, and also materials that are very, very difficult to recycle. Um, so those materials are not sustainable. These are not how we will be able to build in our future. We need to change the way we construct our buildings. So the, um, you know, the construction, the uh, refurbishment, the maintenance of buildings, nearly half of our carbon emissions in the UK. So um, this is a really important time for architects to reappraise how they build, what they build, and even if they build. Mm. <laughs> and so that's one thing. The other thing is that it's um, really fabulous to work with a kind of prefabricated process. So rather than arriving on a kind of mucky building site with bits and pieces of stuff to put together, we actually have a prefabricated construction system that can build any type of building that arrives on site on the back of a truck, goes up very quietly, very quickly. Uh, a mass timber building will weigh about 30% of a regular building, and so much reduced foundations, about 80% reduction in deliveries. And these buildings can be repurposed. They're very easy to adapt. Mm. So imagine you want to put a, you know, you want to put a window in, you get a chainsaw out. You know, it's, you know, it literally is that easy. We've done it. We're putting in a staircase in a building now that we finished already, and we're putting a new staircase in that building, and we're actually chopping the floor slab out and using that floor slab to make the staircase. Just, just picking up on the, the lightness, if it's lighter, presumably wind becomes an issue. Wind is an issue. So wind is an issue. So um, designing with CLT, designing with a material in mind, is principally about wind. So... Um, you know, if you think that a tall building is like a vertical cantilever, like a, a diving board on end, so that the weight of that building is quite easy to hold up. But if you build a long, thin building, then it's, you know, then unless the material is very rigid, then the, the building will kind of suffer from the wind. So we, we tend to propose an architecture that um, mitigates that kind of wind. How? Um, usually by building um, lower buildings, by building buildings that kind of, if you like, they're kind of ziggurat up. Right. Do you see what I mean? So they're kind of like, I mean, there are various ways of just understanding wind. So, you know, we are learning a lot about wind. <laughs> thinking about, and I think also for the first time in a few generations, really, we're thinking about the construction materials that we build with and how those materials affect the architecture. Now, I don't think people have really, I don't think architects have really done that, you know, since uh, high tech. Mm. I think that was the last time that there was really any proper um, material investigation in architecture. Well, that's an interesting one because uh, for this podcast, I'm constantly looking for people who are, you know, as I said in the intro, intrinsically linked to the material and, and architecture. You could have said that for brutalism. You might have had Dennis Lasden. If yeah. you took brick, you could have had Louis Kahn. I mean, you're yeah. right about glass and steel. But there are, it doesn't seem to be 
other than CLT, practices who you readily associate with one material nowadays? No. I mean, there is this kind of, you know, the 50 shades of brick. Yeah. That are kind of like obsessive yeah. <laughs> at the moment. It does my head in anyway. But that's kind of like, you know, which seems to be, you know, what my generation of architects is obsessed with for their whole career. Um, but, you know, yeah, I agree. Absolutely. I think that, you know, the thing is, the the relative simplicity of building a building in concrete and steel, building a building that you kind of make a mold for, you know, then you pour the stuff in, then you take the mold off, then you build another building around it. You know, that kind of process of construction has been something that architects haven't needed to really understand. You know, you can see that in the relationship between architects and engineers. You know, you think about the relationship with Joseph Paxton, you know, to the engineering profession and you look at kind of contemporary architecture which is where engineering has become a kind of problem solving exercise where the architect will kind of sketch something willfully on the envelope or fag packet throw it across the engineer <laughs> you know say you know I'm off for lunch can you you know work that one out you know and the engineers kind of like you know I think have been complicit in that in the sense that they've kind of you know become these problem solvers you know so we we do not want to work like that. And when we start to work with engineers, we sit down with them at the beginning of a job and they're like, oh, we're not usually here at the beginning. <laughs> you know, we try and sort of like work things through with them and talk to them about what we're interested in and to try and understand the engineering kind of parameters of the architecture that we're looking at. Mm. So that's, a, that's, I think, really quite a different process from the one that contemporary architecture has become, you know, has, has become used to. Can we spool back to 2003, the first time you used the material, I yeah. think for a violinist's house, am I right? Uh, it, was a, it was actually a violinist's private membership club. Ah, okay. <laughs> a okay. membership club for classical musicians. <laughs> Why CLT in that first instance? So uh, we had a guy in the office who worked with this guy uh, called Paolo, and Paolo had seen cross-laminated timber in some magazine or something, and the two of us went down to this place, this kind of hippie materials kind of workshop place in South London, and we pushed our way past the straw bales and the sheep's wool insulation, and there in the corner was this German guy um, who's still one of my closest friends, and um, here he was selling this amazing material. And the closer we looked at it, the more we thought about it, the more I got excited about it. The idea that what we drew would, would be what arrived on site, exactly, to the millimetre, so that we could draw on our kind of CAD programmes, you know, that same kind of file goes to the factory, and the material that arrives on site is actually kind of like millimetre perfect. So that kind of process of construction where, you know, where the architect draws something, the builder looks at it, throws the drawing away and builds from memory, you know, which is frankly how much of <laughs> much of our life had been at that point, you know, it's sort of, you know, it's really transformed to this accurate process um, where the architect has this kind of intrinsic link to, um, to actually what is built on site, which was, I found, immediately exciting. But then you didn't use the material again until 2000, 2007, 2008, when you did Murray Grove, which is out. No, we built a couple of little houses oh, in the meantime. Yeah, we did. And we were trying to kind of persuade everybody. I mean, the thing is, you know, I talk to architects in other countries about working with CLT and, you know, architects in Germany or Canada or the US, and they have 
a massive timber industry in those places. And an architect kind of puts their head above the parapet and says, I'm interested in you know, using timber. And the timber promotion agencies start throwing money at them and the government goes, wow, how amazing, yeah, good. You know, but in the UK, nothing. So you know, we've had no encouragement, no help, no backing or anything to do the work that we've done. So we've had to get, and frankly, you know, even the sustainability arguments have really just been you know, generally rejected. That's beginning to change now, but we've had to learn over the last 15 years how to build timber buildings more cost efficiently than a concrete building or a steel building could be built. Well, can I ask why? Because it's quite interesting. I see you on various YouTube films being completely zealous about this material. You finish the film thinking, why was anybody building anything else? Yeah. So why has it taken the UK so long to get their head around the material? I don't know. Do you know what? It does me. I have no idea. I mean, for me, it's like, you know, we know what construction, therefore architecture, we know what that impact is on the environment. You know, we know how bad cement is in terms of its carbon emissions. And yet architects will go and, you know, architects go, well, you know, dear, oh dear, I've got to use a lot of concrete, so I may as well be a vegan and not use plastic straws. I mean, good God, that is just so pathetic. And kind of, you know, it does anyway. But so I don't understand why this hasn't been taken up. Why actually, you know, we, you know, we're not all doing this. I mean, we've demonstrated clearly as a practice that it's possible. Mm. You know, we've had, of the 20 plus buildings that we built in cross laminated timber, we've had maybe one or two clients come to us and say, we're interested in building in timber. You know, the rest of them had to demonstrate that it was more cost effective than building in concrete and steel. Mm. And we've done that because we were really concerned about the implications of our architecture on the environment, you know? So I don't know why it hasn't taken off. It's taking off in other countries. In Paris, the mayor of Paris is pushing for all new development to be done in timber. You know, when we went to the GLA um, this year, earlier this year, and began to talk to them about embodied carbon, the GLA were like, oh, no, we don't really think that that's a good idea. We tried to get the UK Green Building Council to back us. Not even they would back us then. I mean, I think the argument has changed. You know, I mean, what Extinction Rebellion have done in changing the conversation um, and what, you know, now architects declare. Um, you can see the government come, coming behind this. So I think things are really changing mm. just in the last six months, which is really exciting. But it's interesting because I remember we did a talk in Interbuild in Birmingham, which was a very glamorous site to do oh, this yeah. kind of thing, about Murray Grove when it, when it opened. I remember you saying that the developer didn't want people to know yeah. that it was a timber yeah. building. That attitude hasn't changed by the sound of it. Um, it is changing. Right. It is changing. So um, at that time the developer was really concerned that if people knew that it was built of timber, they might not want to buy it. Mm. They might not want to live there. But actually what we know now and what we've been able to demonstrate to people is that actually people will pay more for timber buildings. They will rent them for higher rents, you know, and they will actually make active choices to live in buildings and to work in buildings that are demonstrably better for the environment, better for our planet. This goes down to three little pigs, doesn't it? One of them lived in sticks, yeah. it fell down. We're taught from a young um, age. I know, it's, yeah, it's perception. It is a perception issue, you know, which is really frustrating. Let's talk about the perception of CLT. Well, the problem is fire. It's always around fire. And, you know, that has been 
um, that perception really has been a, a definitely more of an issue since Grenfell and something we need to work hard against. I mean, the truth of it is that, you know, all construction materials are combustible. Concrete buildings burn down. You know, we know that. And timber is a combustible material, like others. But <clears throat> because of people's perception around timber, I think, and because of the necessary understanding about safety in buildings, timber has been tested to the nth degree. So we're constantly fire testing the work that, you know, the work that we do. Every project that we do has a fire engineer on it. I live on the seventh floor of a timber building myself, of a CLT building. So, you know, with my family. Yeah, I was going to so, ask you about you this because it really has changed your life. I mean, both professionally, but oh, also yeah, personally. Totally. Yeah, totally. I mean, this is kind of like, you know, I'm quite, I'm quite architecture obsessive, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, you know, I do, and you know, I grew up in Milton Keynes, and in Milton Keynes, when I remember really vividly when I was a kid, that all the architects were designing all these buildings in Milton Keynes, but living in the thatched cottages all the way around the edge of Milton Keynes. So I thought that was so hypocritical. So when we started really getting into CLT, really getting into kind of mass timber construction, and there are other types of engineered timber that we work with as well, I thought, you know, I need to live in a building made of this. I mean, fascinated by Milton Keynes, because you like cars. Is that where the interest in cars came from? Yeah, I do like cars. <laughs> <laughs> I've got an electric one now. Oh, have you? Yeah, yeah I've got an electric I was ask one now. <laughs> yeah, I've got an electric one now. I, I don't eat beef or lamb. I'm still on a bit of chicken. I'm cutting down the fish. I mean, I'm trying to get better. I wasn't a natural kind of, you know, I wasn't a natural Vegan. sustainable person. Yeah. So it's... Uh, yeah, I do like cars, and uh, anyway, that's in the past. <laughs> no, I still like cars, but I just now I like electric ones. Fair enough. I was actually, interestingly, one of the first and only owners of a Sinclair C5 back in the day. Wow. Which is probably a story for another podcast. Yeah, really. <laughs> um, uh, what I was going to ask is, you kind of sit in quite an interesting, almost in-between space architecturally. There was a fascinating column you wrote for Building Magazine a few years ago where you said that often prize-winning architects I'm going to quote you, yeah. consider that the clinical pursuit of aesthetic finesse and brand identity is important beyond all other considerations. What a state of affairs. So aesthetics, what role does aesthetics play in your practice? I mean, we are, you know, we are an architecture practice. First and foremost, our job, our professional duty is to build buildings that are functional, pragmatic, beautiful you know, and beauty, space, light, materiality are in, you know, are inherent to our pursuit as architects, without a doubt. We're not saying, oh, you know, times are hard, time for some self-flagellation, you have to have ugly buildings, bad spaces. I don't believe that. I mean, I don't, you know, like the electric car. I love my electric car. You know, I love sustainable buildings. We've never been, I've never thought that it has to be a hair shirt. You know, I never thought that this... You know, this is just something that we need to consider, you know, and that needs to be part and parcel of our practice. We need to be part of the solution and not part of the problem as architects. It's no good to just purely pursue this aesthetic kind of end. The other thing as well is I think that an aesthetic pursuit without any kind of cultural narrative behind it is really hollow. You know, that's why the kind of 50 shades of brick bother me so much, mm. because it's really kind of, you know, it's like some sort of cultural 
toy robot in the corner banging itself kind of against the wall. Do you know what I mean? It's got nowhere to go, you know, so it's actually getting quite onanistic in its sort of like, you know, in its sort of like self-obsession. I kind of, you know, so that does wind me up. And I, you know, and I have, um, you know, have become unpopular at dinner parties because of that. <laughs> Also, because you know the thing is that architects who are interested in sustainability have traditionally occupied a peripheral place in the architectural community. You know, they design bird watching centres and, you know, and sort of politely kind of, you know, uh, drive, you know, old fashioned cars and whatever. Do you know that it's kind of like, you know, they, they sort of, and they have that kind of hair shirt kind of aura around them. But... You know, we from really, you know, from day one when we started really getting interested and really thinking that this should be an important part of our practice in architecture, have been very vocal about the fact that this needed to be a mainstream pursuit. You know, we need to work for Barclay Homes. You make a small change in Barclay Homes and that, the implications of that are massive. You know, there's not straw bale houses. That is not the solution of the urban housing crisis, you know? This is, or hempcrete. I mean, Christ. <laughs> okay, well, let's talk about, let's get back well, to the timber. Hempcrete is a great product. I'm not saying it isn't. Let's get back to the timber, because you've been working on it for, with it now for 15 years, obviously. I mean, has the way that you're using it changed in that? Mm -hmm. How? We got better at it. <laughs> you know, we've got better at it. We've got better at detailing it, better understanding how it works. We use a lot less than we used to. We probably use about... 20-30% less timber per square meter than we were doing 10 years ago or so. So we got good at being more economic with it. Um, we began to understand how to incorporate uh, different types of, uh, you know, um, harvested hardwood uh, and uh, like beech or birch, um, looking at glue lambs, looking at different types of doweling, different types of jointing. I mean, you know, we've got really interested in the kind of, in the technology of the material. And we've worked with, you know, modular housing factories, we've worked with CLT factories, you know, we've worked with different kind of manufacturers. So we've really begun to understand the supply chain. Because for me, you know, that the any advance in construction has to come through, has to come through designing with your supply chain. You know, you're not going to come up with a bright idea and then wait for industry to meet you. You know, you need to be working with your supply chain. I mean, this is interesting because I, I was going to talk to you about whether your role in projects has changed. I was at the Vitsu factory, the shelving yeah. uh, manufacturer, do Dieter Rand's uh, products in Limington Spa, uh, a building that you were involved with, but you were kind of collaborating on that. It wasn't mm -hmm. you as architect saying what should happen. So has your role in projects changed in that sense? You know, you, 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 it sounded almost like you were brought in as the, the wood, the timber experts. I mean, we were brought in on a number of, you know, we were brought in as part of a team, I think is probably a more accurate yeah, way of saying okay. it. Sure, you know, we work with, very closely with Mark Adams, the owner of Vitsu, who had some really, you know, really beautiful, clear ideas. I mean, the man has really great clarity. He's very precise. Oh, it's a fab he's a fabulous guy, mm. and it's a great, great product. And working with him, working with James O'Callaghan from Exley O'Callaghan, who has all that kind of amazing structural expertise, and with Martin Francis from RFR, you know, ex-RFR, who is, you know, I mean, fabulous person to work with and incre incredibly talented. So you had actually four people involved in the design, in different aspects of the design sometimes, or, you know, actually, you know, a real combination of skills mm. and talents. And certainly I think for us... 
it was very important, very, and I think for me, very, you know, career-wise, very interesting to work in a situation where you weren't actually the leader of that situation. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's mm. like the architect's generally kind of head of the table, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, we weren't at that. And that's really healthy, I think. Smells fantastic as well. Thank you. <laughs> I do like a good smell. Most building. beautiful smelling factory I've ever visited. You in my should, life. Our construction sites always smell great. Yeah, yeah. Our buildings smell good too. Pine fresh. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, this you used LVL, laminated veneer lumber. Yeah. What did that material bring to the project? It's incredibly strong. So it's it's a it's one of the newer kind of uh, types of engineered timber. It's using uh, veneer hardwood veneers. So instead of cutting planks, you know. I mean, the problem with planking a tree is that you're cutting square things from a round trunk. You know, so it's not very efficient. And um, also, you kind of, if you imagine that a tree is like a kind of a vertical bundle of straws, and as soon as you begin to cut those straws, you kind of you weaken them. Whereas if you imagine if you peel a tree all the way around, then you get to use 85% odd of that tree, and you're also not you're not cutting those straws, you're peeling it round. So the material that you end up with is a lot stronger. So a piece of LVL in section is as strong as a piece of steel. So it's, you know, it's a fabulous material, we love it. Um, yeah, as we kind of discussed that CLT has transformed the practice when we first met two decades ago, which we're not really discussing, <laughs> uh, but you were best known for doing these bars, restaurants, clubs, yeah. often in artist houses, often yeah. in Shoreditch. Yeah. I mean, was there a deliberate choice to rebrand, to look at different areas? There was a choice. It was, a, it was deliberate. It was deliberate. And we kind of, you know, we, you know, <clears throat> Anthony and I kind of jokingly refer it to as our kind of black urinal moment where we were in the office studio late one night and I was trying to find a black urinal on the internet and I thought what am I doing this is ridiculous you know this cannot be the sum total of seven years at college you know it's whatever it's like so I um so it came from that I mean you know these are kind of post-rationalized story isn't it but it's like and it was certainly something that the practice you know evoluted into if you like and that has come I guess with the way that we run the practice or that we've set the practice up is probably a more accurate way of putting it in such that, you know, it's a talking shop. You know, it's always been about research. And actually, funnily enough, even when you're doing, you know, bars and nightclubs, you're always looking for the next thing to do. So that kind of, I think, definitely breeds that kind of feeling of innovation within a practice. Mm. And so that's definitely been part of what we've done as a practice. But you know what? We... <clears throat> we started straight from school, straight from university. So we didn't really know how to build. So actually, when we began to build buildings, we approached that in a quite a basic sort of tectonic kind of fashion. So thinking about the building materials that we were going to build with, because we didn't know what we were doing, was a kind of, you know, was part of a quite, I guess, predictable evolution of the practice. Because you and Anthony met in Kingston. Yeah. I mean, did you never want to work for anybody else? No. Why not? I don't know. I think maybe it's just a personality disorder of some sort or other. I just, I wasn't very, and I think that when I, because I have people that work in the studio here that are just the most fantastic, amazing, talented architects. And I think, right, how can I make this environment so that you 
how can I build an environment in a studio where you are able to thrive as an individual architect? You know, because, I mean, I worked for Sandy Wilson in my year out. Mm. I who worked, did the British Library. He did the British Library, yeah. And that was a really kind of, you know, very special, fundamental kind of time for me in, in terms of my development as, in practice. Why? Well, because he was really, really good. <laughs> He's just, just such a talented, <laughs> amazing person. And I think that there was nothing pretentious about his practice. There was only passion and joy and studiousness. You know, it was kind of relentless, the kind of the working, the sketching, the thinking, you know, the discussing. And I found that just wonderful. And I really enjoyed working there. I worked at KPF for a while as a model maker. I really, you know, when, when we were first setting up here in practice, I really loved the kind of, you know, the sort of the detail and the intricacy and the kind of, and the making of model making. Um, so that, but that was really, I mean, barring other holiday jobs, that was really, you know, the only places I'd worked in. So when Anthony and I set up, we didn't really know how to run a practice. Mm. You know, we had no idea about drawing issue sheets and stuff. I mean, only when we began to employ people that had worked for other practices and they came in and said, what, you don't have a title block? We're like, a what? <laughs> I'm joking, but you know, it's kind of like, so we really had to learn, you know, what VAT stood for, etc. Yeah, 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 you know, yeah, no idea at all. I'm intrigued by the, uh, <clears throat> the Sandy Wilson thing because uh, he famously used to hang out in the colony room in the uh, 50s uh, with artists in yeah. Soho. Yeah. Um, and, I used and you to used to hang out. I yeah, I was a member of the Colony Rooms. Oh, dear. Yeah, I was a member there until, uh, yeah. And uh, in the 90s and when, um, yeah, I'm just trying to remember who worked behind the bar. Who worked behind the bar? Was it Sam Taylor Wood used to work behind the bar? Sarah Lucas? Sam Taylor Wood, I think. Anyway, it was, uh, yeah, so I, I used to go there. I mean, he I said worked. he wanted to be, he would have liked to have been an artist. And you yeah. were hanging out in Shoreditch in the 90s. Yeah, I was. With lots of the YBAs. Yeah. Um, and would you have liked to be an artist? No, terrible bunch of people. Scruffy, <laughs> you know, scruffy ne'er-do-wells. I knew that, I, you see, I knew from a very early age that they were going nowhere, that they'd never make any money. <laughs> <laughs> I was just looking for a ticket out of Shoreditch yeah. as fast as I could go, I can tell you. Yeah, I got that one wrong. I mean, can we talk a little bit about that time? Because it was a really interesting, I was kind of there, sort yeah. of-ish. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember much of it. But um, it was an interesting moment for the city and for lots of burgeoning careers, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a, it's a once in a hundred years occasion, you know, for a city to have that kind of explosion of artists. And I think that, you know, it couldn't have happened really without that sort of perfect storm of, of um, social benefits. You know, everybody was on social security. That's how come they could paint without making money and that's how come you could leave art school and just start to paint is because you got social security and you can do that now i don't know how you survive as an artist now but also you have so, huge spaces and you have in you, the middle of the space you in did the middle in of the zone city. one i know mm. and you know when i arrived in shoreditch you know thanks to sarah featherstone actually but she you know she was here already and i was like wow this is zone one and i can rent somewhere for nothing and this is like amazing you know lots of space and that's why there were artists here. I mean, I didn't come here because they were artists. There were artists here and, you know, a bunch of scroungers there were as well. So, um, but, you know, Damien Hurst, you know, is probably, you know, his kind of 
genius around both I think as an artist and as somebody who who you know wanted to understand the art market you know really was the kind of principal progenitor of all of that sort of mm. um, of all of that sort of stuff and you know and having people you know with the talent of the Chapmans and of you know and of um, Tracy M and Sarah Lucas I mean you know was amazing Gary Hume etc because I love that anecdote about your first, which you did with Sarah the Blue Note, you did with Sarah the Pedestal. Yeah. You just literally jumped on the owners and said, let me yeah, design no, this, let me I design did. this iconic I club like, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I kind of saw them walking into the door and I kind of followed them in, going, you know, saying, you know, everybody needs an architect. Come on, guys. And I think that I'd seen that level of enthusiasm from my friends that were artists. You know, and as I was saying, when they finished college, they started painting. And I thought, well, I've finished college. I'll start building. You know, Sarah was up for that as well. So we just started, you know, and I think that that kind of optimism, enthusiasm and the self-belief that artists are trained to develop was really something that I wanted to emulate, something that I thought was kind of laudable. I'm, I'm intrigued. Were you a good student? You're at Kingston. No, terrible. Why? Terrible student. Biggest mistake in my life is how bad a student I was. I don't know. I really don't know. And I kind of, you know, um, Sarah Wigglesworth was one of my tutors and I mean, she's fabulous. Really, I think a great architect. And I could have learned so much from her and I didn't. And I just didn't work hard enough. I don't know what it was. I think it was kind of, um, I don't know. It's a regret to me. I mean, I teach architecture a lot now, you know, all over the place. And I loved that. I love teaching and I love my job. Why I didn't work at college, still can't fathom. I think that I was just, you know, I think I was a teenager until I was about 29. Because when I think of, uh, going back to Shoreditch, when I think of that time and place, uh, there are a few practices that kind of spring to mind. You guys being one of them, um, David Adjay, Will Russell yeah. being another. Yeah. Um, I mean, David obviously has gone on to build huge museums in Washington yeah. and have dinner with uh, President Obama. Did you always think he was going to be a star? No, I didn't. But you know what? He went into practice after leaving Will. He went into practice with a, you know, with a marketing and PR agent, and I was at the time couldn't understand that. Now I understand <laughs> it. Now I'm growing up. I understand what a kind of agility he had toward that kind of thing. How he understood that kind of thing so much more than you know than I did. And you know, as you say, he's gone on to to do some really great great work. Was he one of the Eastlets you were talking about in that earlier quote, I wonder? Um, not as clear-cut as that, no. I think the thing is, David, to give David his credit, he has always really understood the ethos of his architecture. He's, you know, I think, I think the other thing is that what David had, David had much more self-belief than I've ever had. And maybe that comes from being successful at college. I don't know, <laughs> or just believing in your own talent or kind of, you know, but that kind of, I think that level of self-belief really was a great driver for him. But you must have, you must have self-belief. I mean, to set up in practice by yourself, to have 30 people working here now. 35. 35. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, do I? I, um, more and more, I guess, more and more. I mean, I try to, I mean, the problem with the architecture, with the practice of architecture is that it encourages you to become somebody who um, emanates this self-belief. 
Because if somebody's going to give you 50 million quid, you know, you need to sort of come across as somebody who really is completely confident about what they're going to do with that money. You, do you understand what I mean? So, um, and the thing about being 50 plus um, in architecture is that actually, you know, I've been building buildings, drawing buildings, thinking about buildings for more than 30 years. So, yeah, there is some level of confidence that comes from having done that. Are you still, relatively speaking, are you still a young architect? Relatively speaking to older architects. <laughs> <laughs> but in other words, I guess has your relationship with potential clients changed? Yeah, it has. Yeah, suddenly you go into a meeting and it seems to weirdly happen overnight. You go into a meeting, you look around the table and you go, oh my God, I'm the oldest person here. You know, and that just happened. And I don't know how it happened, but, um, you know, I think the thing is, is that, you know, you can see this from, you know, the photographs of Norman Foster in his swimming trunks and sitting on inflatable unicorns. The idea in architecture, you've got to keep young, you've got to keep agile, you know, you've got to keep your brain, your invention, your innovation, your imagination kind of working. So we're coming to the end of our time. Future of the practice, Andrew. Ooh, that where, sounds ominous. Where, <laughs> where do you see yourself uh, going? And obviously you were nominated for the Sterling Prize yeah. last year. Um, is the future still...? That was so important for us. That was really important for us because the thing is we've been, you know, as you said, we kind of had quite a, a high profile doing all these nightclubs and bars and restaurants around town. And then we got, we became these kind of timber obsessives, mm. you know, sunk ourselves in this hole for like 15 years. And then we do one building that isn't timber you know, one building that actually, well, that sounds an interesting project. Even though I'm doing this, I'm definitely going to have a go at that. We do one project out of a kind of vein of projects that we're doing, and it gets nominated mm. for the Sterling Prize. Mm. So that, that was good, because then I think that that reminded people that actually we're a design practice, you know, and we've always been an architectural design practice. Because that was rammed earth, amongst other things. It was rammed it? earth. Yeah, yeah. It was, yeah, it was, the buildings were, were, were made of rammed earth. What's the technique, just for the listeners, what's yeah. the technique of, of rammed earth? The technique of rammed earth is get a lot of earth, yeah. ram it. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. And if you can, get some Australians to ram it with you. Because um, they're just the best. So... Um, where were we? What were we talking I about? What is the future? Is the it future, ominous? Like, what am I going to be? Uh, Where do I see let's, myself? Let's talk about Bushy Cemetery for a moment. Yeah. Since we're there. Because okay. why wasn't that in timber? Why the round earth? Why not in timber? Was that a conscious decision? Did the clients not the thing want is, it? No, we've, it never occurred to me to build that building in CLT. Right. You know, from the minute that we, you know, working with uh, Julen, who is the, the project architect, you know, from the moment that the, that the form of those buildings began to take shape, actually the idea of building them in rammed earth. I mean, the thing is for us, we're about low carbon materials. Mm. The best low carbon material that I have come across is timber. But, you know, the, the sketch is not timber, the sketch is low carbon, if you see what I mean. So in going back to the sketch, that's, you know, that's about what can we do to reduce our, you know, how do we build reducing our carbon footprint? So actually by taking the soil from the site you know, that we were having to, you know, take off the surface anyway to, you know, to help flatten the site by taking that site, soil and building the buildings from it. You see, one of the one of the amazing things, well, one of the kind of amazing things about that brief is those buildings will probably only be there for 70 years because in 70 years time, the cemetery will be full and they will move to another site. 
And those buildings need to kind of crumble back right. into the earth from mm. where they came, you know, dust to dust mm. and all that. Mm. So um, that, I think, was very inherent in kind of, you know, in the architecture was the materiality of that space, of, those, of that place, rather. But in terms of where we're going in 50 years, 50 years, but <laughs> in terms of where we're going as a practice, I don't know. I, I know that's not a good answer, but where we are now compared to where we were three years ago, I would never have dreamt that. I mean, you know, we've got buildings in Sweden, Norway, France, United States, um, looking at other projects internationally, um, really beginning to get our voice heard in terms of low carbon architecture globally. Is, is that a contradiction amazing. though, I wonder? Hell yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it is. It is. I am... Uh, yeah, it is. I mean, we, we carbon offset, and whenever I fly, I try and do as many things in that area as I can. So, you know, if I fly to China, which I'm doing next week, for instance, I'm talking at an architecture conference about sustainability. I will also teach in China and meet developers in China and talk to them about sustainability. You know, when I go to America to, to, to talk about our project in the States, I go and see my mum. <laughs> no, but you know, and and we, you know, I try and make very conscious decisions about what kind of aeroplane I fly in. You know, the seven eight seven has half the carbon offset, carbon emissions of a seven four seven. All that, you know, we're very and we carbon offset. But yeah, sure, it's one of the things that I can't see a solution for, mm. and I don't know what to do about that. I catch the train whenever I can, whenever feasible. But you know what? I mean, it's a uh, you know, two tons of carbon to fly to the States, right? And typically in our buildings will be thousands and thousands of tons of carbon, you know, just locked into the timber. If we can change the global construction environment from a largely concrete practice to a largely timber practice, then the planet will grow more trees, which will suck more oxygen up. We will have a carbon store in our buildings you know, this is kind of like, this is such a positive and important move that I don't feel as guilty as I could. <laughs> That's a lovely place to leave it. Andrew War, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. And to learn more about War Thistleton, go to warthistleton.com. There are images from the interviews as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And go to my Patreon page and make a pledge. You can find that at patreon.com forward slash material matters. You'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks very much for listening.